Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I'm talking to Katie Ellis from Curtin University, Australia, about disability in popular culture, focusing passion, creating community, and expressing defiance. So, welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking with Katie Ellis, who is a senior research fellow in internet studies at Curtin University in Australia. We're going to be talking about her new book, Disability in Popular Culture, Focusing Passion, Creating Community, and expressing defiance. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. I wonder if we could uh, start off by uh, asking you a little bit about your academic background, the kind of research you do, and uh, what led you to write this book. Okay. Um, well, I, I did my PhD um, in communications. I was looking at um, the representation of disability in Australian cinema during the 90s. And so, so what, what I was sort of doing that PhD was looking at, was in Australia during that time we were doing a lot of multicultural filmmaking. And, um, but there also seemed to be a lot of disability coming up in a lot of the films. And so I was looking at, you know, the influences of different disability legislations that came out also during the 90s and kind of how Australian filmmakers dealt with that or didn't really know how to deal with that. Um, and then after I finished my PhD, I, I worked um, in the university system in equity and one of my jobs there was um, getting alternative course materials for people with different types of impairments. And so I sort of started getting really interested in technology there and how, you know, digital technology could provide these sort of accessible options. And at that same time, a friend of mine was interested in this area too. So together we collaborated on an article about iTunes and how it wasn't, at the time, wasn't very accessible to people with vision impairments. So from that um, article that we wrote, this is with my colleague Mike Kent, we then decided to write a book about disability and new media and how um, the internet, while it should be a really kind of enabling place for people with disabilities, sort of replicated the same sort of inaccessibility we have in the world, you know, the physical world we live in. So, and then after that, I just kept working in um, the TV disability media sides of thing, and I really was interested in popular culture, sort of a popular culture enthusiast, uh, but there wasn't really any book about it, and I was also having problems trying to get anything published about it within, you know, popular culture studies or also with disability studies. So this book is sort of a collection of my articles that I've had a lot of trouble trying to get published and came together quite nicely as a book, I think, in the end. Yeah, so. it, it, it's quite ra- wide-ranging, and we'll sort of um, illustrate that. Um, as we talk about it, but it's also got a couple of really kind of core um, ideas that it wants to engage with. And, and partially this is to do with the idea of disability itself, 
but also it's to do with um, what you think a kind of uh, a cultural text is. So I wonder if we could start off by um, the question of what are the social and cultural models of disability uh, and why are they kind of important to understanding the book? Okay, well, um, to talk about the social and cultural models of disability, we really need to talk about the medical model of disability, um, which is the model and way of understanding disability that most people are familiar with, and that's the idea that um, disability is a medical problem that sort of occurs within an individual's damaged body. And so any problems that result from that um, are located within in the individual who then should come up with the solutions to those problems. Um, but the social model sort of inverts that and says disability isn't located in the individual's damaged body. It's actually something that society puts on top of people who have impairments. And so it's, um, it's an idea that came out of the UK with um, Michael Oliver um, and a group called the... Um, a group who redefined disability... Um, by splitting it from impairment, so the impairment's the um, physical problem in, within the body, but disability is the restriction of activity that's imposed on top of that. So it's just basically saying disability is a socially created thing, and the um, the cultural model is a part of, came out of that, but is more US based. And what the cultural model does is it um, recognizes that there are still impacts from the impairment that a person has, but also that, you know, looking at culture, we get a bit of an insight into why different um, ways of understanding disability have changed with different cultural changes. Um, so that's, that's sort of, these are the real core ideas of the book because what I wanted to look at was the way that disability isn't just a medical problem, that it is, you know, an identity category, I guess, that people with disabilities get discriminated against. They um, have stigma imposed on top of them that has nothing to do with their actual impairment but more to do with the way society interprets their impairment. So those are sort of the core ideas around disability to go against the medical model that we generally understand is what disability means. And the, the other starting point is uh, this question of kind of what what a text is really, and you use this term, which I think is quite interesting, the producerly text. What what, what does what does that term mean? Okay, well that's that's a term that John Fisk introduced in his book Understanding Popular Culture, and so what um, he is doing with the idea of the producerly text is he draws on um, Bath's idea around the readerly text and the writerly text. So Bath said that there are two different types of text. The readerly text is the sort of text that sort of invites passive consumption from its viewers. Viewers just go in and accept whatever the dominant meaning of the text is with the readerly text. Um, and with the writerly text, the viewers contribute to the meaning-making process of the text itself. And so what Fisk was proposing is that there's a third category, the, the producerly text, which is, you know, a popular culture text basically that um, so preferred meanings are accommodated in, in the producerly text but readers can also come in and question these preferred meanings or these preferred ideologies that are presented within popular culture. So what he was saying is that 
you know, popular culture operates within this certain system, but there are some elements of it that can't be controlled. And that's because readers come in and bring their own context to it. And and I, I guess that's another core idea for the book is the kind of conversations that popular culture creates, particularly around disability. So we might have, you know, certain images of dis- disability in popular culture that are really quite disabling, but people can pick up on those ideas and start a conversation about it and questions what's going on. Yeah, I think that's one of the things the book does really well, actually. It shows that, you know, there aren't these kind of fixed, immutable meanings um, to popular cultural texts and artefacts. Actually, you know, they are kind of social and, and, and relational things um, that are, you know, argued over, contested, um, you know, and, and, you know, people are kind of heavily involved in, in producing their meanings beyond just being you know, passive consumers. And you do this in a whole range of, of different ways, actually, through kind of sport, popular music, um, through uh, discussions of films, sci-fi, this kind of stuff. But but your first example is children's toys. So I wonder, um, you give a kind of, uh, I guess, quite uh, a positive story about uh, children's toys. And I wonder if you could talk through um, what children's toys tell us um, around, around disability in popular culture and why they might be examples um, of kind of greater social inclusion. Okay, well, I I started the book with children's toys because I actually think this is a really important side of popular culture. I think, you know, children's toys as a site, they sort of represent the past, present and future. So, you know, as adults, when we approach children, children's toys, we, we sort of bring certain nostalgia of our own childhood to it. Um, we're giving, we're buying them for our children now, so that's the present. And well, the reason we're giving them to our children is because we're trying to prepare them for what's going to happen for their future. So I just found it really interesting the way the image of um, disability has changed in children's toys throughout history. And what what I found out in the research for this book was um, the different types of the toys that have been created at and for mass consumption, mass produced at different points in time. So during the 70s and the Vietnam War, there were, there were quite a few um, action figures that actually invoked um, different disabilities. So we have a G.I. Joe, the Mike Power Atomic Man um, and a $6 million man. And there was also this great toy that I found, um, J.J. Arms, who was based on a real person, who was an amputee and he was a um, hostage negotiator and trouble consultant. And I just thought he was a fantastic image that was put into a, um, a children's toy and that then people then bought, gave to their children. I'm sure he's a collector's item now. Um, so I, I just thought that at different moments of social change, children's toys started reflecting disabilities. We, again, we had in the 90s the um, Share a Smile Becky um, Barbie doll who came out. And since the book's been released, there's been a, a quite a big online movement called Toy Like Me where people are trying to get uh, greater inclusion of diversity, disability diversity in the toy box. And they've made great strides getting... So um, Playmobil and a company called Makey's are introducing children's toys in response to this 
big group of people making a greater call for them. So it's, it's great, but, I'll, you know, it happened after the book was already published. So I think we're, we're seeing another movement now for a greater inclusion of people with disabilities amongst children's toys. Uh, and these kinds of issues, which, which are sort of constant throughout the book, um, are really important, obviously, in kind of contemporary adulthood too. So you draw on uh, the idea of the beauty myth and its relationship to disability to talk through um, how people are represented uh, in things like Playboy in Chapter 3. Yep. Okay. So, so the beauty myth, basically the way I'm presenting it in the book, is this ideal of beauty that people, the majority of us probably don't live up to it, uh, but it's it's presented to us as the ideal and sort of this ideal sort of increasingly being conflated with what's normal. Now we, we constantly see these images of beauty that are really difficult to live up to. Uh, and so, so what I'm suggesting in Chapter 3 is that we're starting to see challenges to the beauty myth in some modelling and other fashion imagery with disability creeping into that. But I also draw on this example of um, this Playboy model called Ellen Stoll. She was um, she modelled for Playboy during the 1980s when she was um, just newly paralysed, quadriplegic, and she wrote, she wrote a letter to Hugh Hefner saying, you know, she thinks there should be greater imagery of people with disabilities in a sexual context so would he feature her in Playboy? And he ended up doing that. And sort of she started this whole conversation about disability and sexuality. But people had a bit of a problem with with the photo spread because she was sort of presented just as an able-bodied person was. You, you couldn't tell by looking at the photos that she was paralysed. So there was some back and forth about that within within the disability community. And as an example, it's still something that's spoken about quite a lot. So she her goal was to challenge ideas around the beauty myth and disability. But the way sort of that it ended up happening was her images were just as you would see an able bodied person in a, a Playboy spread anyway. The um I suppose the children's toys discussion and um, the kind of beauty myth and representations in, in men's magazines or in, um, you know, kind of softcore pornography mm-hmm. is grounded in the kind of, you know, everyday images uh, that, that we see. But but you're also very interested in uh, more kind of fantastical and particularly science fiction representations of disability. Um and how they interact with this thing you describe as the third stage of disability. So I wonder if you could you could talk about what that is and its okay. relationship to uh, to sci-fi. Sure. Well, well, the third stage of disability goes back to the social model of disability that we we started this talk with, and so there's um according to the social model that there are three stages of disability. The the first stage is in sort of the feudal era where people with disabilities lived with their families, worked on farms and they could adapt their own equipment to suit their own needs and they were supported by their family within the first stage and not necessarily disabled by society. And then the second stage occurred during the Industrial Revolution when um, a concept of able-bodied normality was sort of 
established around, you know, machines, the the assembly line and people being able to come in and out and, and work on particular um, machines without need, any need for adaptation. So uh, what what the social disability social model theorists suggested was that there would be a third state of stage of disability whereby people with disabilities wouldn't be disabled anymore because we would have technological advancement and acceptance to the extent that people with disabilities would be able to adapt their own workplaces to suit their own bodies and and their own needs and and in that way they would be able to become members of the workforce in the same way as as non-disabled people. And I, I see this as an idea that comes up a lot in science fiction because science fiction is often about the future and it's, it is often about the, the workforce in the future and, uh, and how that workforce is established. And we, we see a lot of technology use in sci-fi. And another, another idea that I found really interesting with the science fiction and this idea of the third stage of disability is that different forms of disablement will be introduced in the future also as a result of technology. You know, I guess we, we can sort of, we can see that now you and I are having a conversation across time zones. You know, this, this concept of time is, is changing via technology and we don't yet know what the implications of that are going to be in terms of different, different types of disablement that emerge. And I just see this as a theme that comes up again and again in science fiction. Yeah, the, the examples you give uh, uh, from uh, the film Gattaca and you, you also mentioned Avatar as well. I, I wonder actually if you could um, maybe, maybe say a little about uh, one of those two. Okay. Um, well, I found Avatar is probably one of, one of the inspirations for the book. Overall, and I know later we're going to talk about Lady Gaga and she's as well. So I just found Avatar really interesting because when when it came out, you know, there was a lot of negative reaction towards Avatar and the kinds of disability messages that it was bringing up that, you know, an able-bodied actor was used. And I just felt like maybe it's also bringing up some really interesting themes about disability and participation that we could also talk about within, instead of just saying, oh, this is a really negative representation, have, have a look at what is happening in Avatar. So something I found is interesting in Avatar is, you know, he doesn't go to be cured. He's, he sort of goes there to work. This Jake Sully, who is uh, he's disabled uh, physically, but also socially by the um, society that he lives in. He was he was paralysed in a war, and sort of within the context of the film, it suggested he could, you know, that the medical technology and procedures are available to to cure him, I guess, but he he can't afford it, and the society that he, in a sense, sacrificed his body for has sort of left him behind. So he has to um, he has to take on the role of his his deceased twin brother and and go to this other planet to try and 
to work, essentially. I think we needed to look at, at these sorts of issues and how he's, he is able to sort of, um, within the context of the film, he is, when he arrives, he's rejected by each group, but then by the end of the film he has been able to sort of infiltrate each each group as not just a um, a trusted member but as a leader and that's a that's a disabled character taking on that role and that's a new sort of representation that we might not have seen before. And if you know we just look at the film in a really superficial way then we miss out on that that message opportunity for conversation. And, and you, you sort of push that I, I guess that demand for um, a very justified demand, I think, for, you know, kind of detailed and rich analysis of popular cultural texts when you're talking about television as well. Um, and one of the things you, you talk about is how representation of disability has, has really changed um, over time on television. Yeah, that, that's one of my big things that I'm re- really interested in is, is TV and, and particularly within this new sort of TV context that we're in right now where, you know, we have the big budget, I guess it's cinematic style television, you know, yeah. the Game of Thrones and things like that. And we're seeing a lot of disability coming up in that, not just as, you know, one-off storylines, but with main characters. And I'm a big fan of um, Tyrion Lannister and Game of Thrones, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, in this book I also write about um, Friday Night Lights uh, where we've got some main actual main characters with disabilities driving the narrative and engaging with storylines we haven't seen before and also bringing up some, and Tyrion does this a lot, he brings up sort of little messages about the position of people with disabilities in society and I think that's that's a definite change we're seeing in, in television, that we've got the main characters and they're actually telling us about how as a society we are disabling people through our attitudes in particular. And, and they're obviously, you know, complicated, contradictory, yeah. ambivalent. You know, yeah. there's, there's there's that kind of sense of these being fully rounded characters rather than, mm-hmm. you know, being kind of uh, just uh, representations of uh, just, a particular social position of disability. Yeah, yeah, or not just there to invoke some kind of reaction in other characters on the TV show who maybe were more important. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned Lady Gaga before, and the sixth chapter of the book um, has got this engagement with um, her and kind of disability in popular music. And you also draw on the work, and I must admit I'm a big fan of this book, uh, of George Mackay around um, the, the role of disability in, in, in popular music too. Um, so I wonder if you could maybe talk about Lady Gaga as a case study, but but perhaps, you know, the kind of the wider context of this complicated relationship popular music has with disability. Okay, well, I thought, um, I think Lady Gaga is a really good example because she is so familiar with, I guess, the language of popular culture. She She includes a lot of popular culture imagery and references and textual references within her music and her videos in particular. And again, it was the um it was the sort of blogger reaction to Lady Gaga and the um image of disability in the paparazzi video mm. that I think really got me thinking about these issues. I'm not a Lady Gaga fan, but I just came across <laughs> article 
I'm not, but after the research for this book, I've sort of I've come to have a real deep respect for what she's doing in her. Yeah, the video. book you, you do the book does make you sound quite sympathetic towards her, actually. If, well, if not an outright fan. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not. I just I think probably I'm a popular culture fan, and I can see what she's doing in her music videos and all the references she does make. I'm, I guess I'm a fan of that. Uh, but it was her paparazzi video where she included, uh, there was a scene where she 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 became disabled because the, the paparazzi were hounding her and um, there was sort of an on- online backlash against that imagery. There was 50 seconds, I think, within the video itself of her, you know, dancing with a cane and, and she also had all these other, she was invoking a lot of other imagery in a lot of her performances around disability and, and people were talking about that. And I I think she's an important case study because she does sort of draw these images in. She she may not be making a specific, you know, social comment about disability, but she she's brought it into the the music video as as a sign and in amongst all all of these other things that are going on and she and that really got people talking so it was as much people's conversations about what lady gaga was doing that i'm interested in as much as lady gaga herself and the way she seems to be knowledgeable about popular culture and what elicits emotion and how she brought that into her music and it goes through and then later and she does draw on you know her personal experience with certain things such as anxiety and and then she then came to have a um an injury that she had to pull out of some performances from and and again could go goes back to the the beauty myth from earlier where she uh she then started uh making disability somewhat fashionable in her bejeweled wheelchair and things like that, custom design wheelchair. So, and and you asked a, a question about George McKay, didn't you? No, just commenting on uh, I really like that book because I think it, I really I really really like that book. You know, what, what, one of the things that he, he does is to try and say actually there is you know there is a really important relationship between disability and popular culture that uh, and and it links back to things like the beauty myth that is often you know kind of excluded or, or airbrushed out. Mm. Um, I, I want to pick up on a, a comment you made about uh, people's reactions to Lady Gaga, and, and this um, is, is something you do um, basically kind of, you know, right at the end of the book uh, where you point, I guess, towards uh, your work as an internet scholar. Um, and this is around the kind of the role of, of what you call um, spreadable media, you know, how people have blogs, you've got a really good example of the case of, uh, uh, you know, sort of feminist uh, discussion sites, uh, superstar bloggers, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So so I wonder if you could expand the analysis out and tell us the story of um, disability and popular culture online. Okay, well, just to expand on the the famous blogosphere that you, you were just talking about there, there was a um, – within um, – a well-known feminist blogging site, there was some feminist bloggers with disabilities who felt sort of disempowered and not that their views were not being made visible within the feminist blogosphere. So they 
started their own um, their own blog around disability issues. It's it's since been archived. It's no longer running, but the the disability blogosphere is still going in other places. So I, I guess um, what's happening is online we haven't we have an opportunity to to talk about these things or maybe publish um, opinions around disability that might not have appeared in other places and that there are lots of lots of blogs you can go to and, and lots of disabled bloggers out there who, who are using these sorts of um, avenues to, to raise issues around around disability and often popular culture features in these quite heavily and television. And what what we're seeing in, in a lot of these these blogs or these engagements with, with TV is this discussion about how some things are disabling or some things are enabling and we go quite deep into the text and and conversations contributing, going other directions on within the comments themselves. You know, people say never read the comments, but I think in this <laughs> you should read the comments. Never go below the line. Yeah, yeah keep going, see people, lots of different people bringing their knowledge together to come up with a new conversation. And, yeah. and I think the other side of that online is the um, images of people with disabilities that are just sort of spread around randomly on social networking sites, uh, Facebook in particular, to sort of inspire, you know, for inspirational reasons. Um, a, a disability advocate and comedian, Stella Young, wrote an article a few years ago about, and she labelled these images of people with disabilities, particularly children, that we just you know, people just share on social media or like on social media as inspiration porn. She said, you know, they're not, there's not, it's nothing to do with disability or the reality of disability or even raising awareness about disability. They're just there to make other people feel better about themselves. And she sort of, what she was saying was, you know, next time you, you click like, think about why you're really doing it, what what is the real role here of, of these images? And some, something that I looked at in the book is the way these images sort of provoke emotion in people and then people then just spread them on. I use Henry Jenkins' idea about spreadable media, this idea that, you know, we, we are spreading the media around now, sort of using social networking that, um, you know, something can infect us kind of like a virus and then we spread it on and then it becomes sort of really big within our, our network. And you see it, uh, just so much disability within that and it's it's inspiration porn disability. It's not just, I guess, average disability. And something I, I wrote about in the book was the way these these images are being used to sort of trick people. So this idea of like farming, so <laughs> were you going to say something? No, so just just the, the, the term, which I think is, you know, a, a really accurate um, kind of, it captures, you know, how uh, how these things work online, but just, the, sorry, the, the term sort of amused me. 
Oh, the like farming. Like farming, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's try, trying to collect a large number of likes, and then even though it's against Facebook rules, but what happens is sometimes these pages are then sold on to to other people, and I'm not sure how far it went, but there was probably very far actually. Uh, there was an image of a little girl with Down syndrome, and underneath it, it was a caption that said, this is my sister Mallory. She doesn't think she's beautiful. Um, please like it so I can show her later how beautiful she really is. And, you know, it just spread around Facebook like crazy. But it was um, that image was not of, of a little girl called Mallory. It was the image stolen from somebody else's blog. So so what, what the owners of that page were probably doing was uh, – collecting likes to then sell the page on, which the, then the page would be revamped for something else. And so, so the little girl's mother actually happened onto this from people th- through her blog, said your daughter is sort of flying around Facebook. So it, it took her over six months to get Facebook to actually take it down. And, and there are other examples of images of people with disabilities, so, you know, burns victims or soldiers who've been disabled in war, that their image of being appropriated by other people trying to attract those those valuable likes which have a monetary value in social media. So, so we're kind of being tricked by our predilection, I guess, for, for sympathy towards this. Oh, pity, I should use pity. The word pity is more apt in this situation. It, it, it's interesting because the, the, the sort of the thing that comes, um, comes really powerfully from, from the book is, is the intersection of um, disability with not just a range of popular cultural texts, but also with a range of um, contemporary issues that are, are essentially, you know, quite quite common, you know, in, in a whole range of different settings globally, um, and for you know, gender, ethnicity, social class, sexuality, etc. Et, et I think that's one thing the book does really well is the kind of uh, ground disability in, in relation to these other debates and, and, and other issues. As you mentioned, you know, the kind of uh, the sense of being tricked by Facebook or. Uh, the tensions between disability and, and feminism. And I'm interested in sort of where you're going next after the book. You know, are you doing more of this research or uh, have you got a completely new research project going on? Um, yes, I, I've got a fair bit on, but um, I'm, I'm a few weeks away from delivering another book to Ashgate. Uh, this one's an edited collection. And it's on disability and social media. So, so this book looks at um, disability and social media from both the, the, the represent, representation side of thing that we've been talking about today, the way different groups of people have used social media. And, and this is a very broad book. It's very international. So we've got people from all over the world, different impairments, different social media sites. Um, and we also look at accessibility. So whether people with disabilities are able to access social media as well as how they use it. So so that is really the um, where what I'm doing right now, trying to finish that up in the next couple of weeks to get it to the publisher, hopefully be out next year. 
good look. Yeah, it's fantastic. There's some really, really good chapters on it. Got some great contributors. All over the world, really lucky with that book. Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, we were discussing Disability in Popular Culture by Katie Ellis from Curtin University in Australia.